As you might remember, in early April of 2017, Governor Jerry Brown lifted emergency orders related to California's historic five-year drought. After an unusually wet year, reservoirs were brimming, the Sierra snowpack was bulging, and the drought was declared officially over within the state. But what many people don't know is that for three counties in California, the drought was not over then. One of these counties was Tulare County, where thousands of residents still, to this day, do not have water coming out of their taps. And for them, the drought is definitely not over. Yet, there's a lot of water in Tulare County. The county contains over a million acres of agricultural farmland and grows over 230 different food crops. These two things, the fact that all this water is being used to grow food, and that thousands of people living in Tulare County don't have access to water to drink or bathe with, might seem at odds. But community experiences of water shortage are actually directly linked to the water flows that feed our crops, and indirectly to all of us, as today's podcast will uncover. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the Calag Roots Podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming in order to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. You can listen to all of our stories at www.agroots.org. Today, we're lucky enough to feature a couple of guest co-producers, Dr. Claire Gupta and Christina Murillo Barrick, two social scientists who are on a team of hydrologists, engineers, and economists at UC Davis. As part of a larger research study on the links between agriculture, water, and community well-being, Claire and Christina have been collecting narratives of impacted communities who don't have access to safe and affordable drinking water. In the past year, they've spent time talking to people who live and struggle with these issues every day. They've spoken to some leading researchers on California water issues, too. Today, you'll hear from Christina about what they learned. Here she is to take it away. Hi, I'm Christina. So, before we dive into issues of water in California, you might still be asking yourself, why are we talking so much about water on a podcast series about agriculture? To explain this, I consulted a member of our research team, Dr. John Herman, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Davis. He studies water resource management and climate change. As we sit in our office at UC Davis, I ask him, what he thinks our listeners should know about water issues in California. This is what he said. Probably the biggest thing is just to be aware of the fact that without the state's water infrastructure, we could not have the cities and the agriculture that we have in California. So just, just be aware of all of the you know, water transfers and conveyance that's happening throughout the state to, to get water to you at, at, at home, right? And, and just have some appreciation for that. John understands that many of us, and I include myself here, go through life not thinking much about what makes it possible for water to flow through our taps. But John's research has made him very aware of how access to water and the booming agriculture industry in California can't be taken for granted. Both are the direct results of human decision-making and large-scale water infrastructure investment. You might remember that California has a Mediterranean climate, which is to say it doesn't rain for much of the year. 
This means that we humans have two potential sources of water during the driest months. Surface water that flows from the melting snows of the Sierra Nevada, or groundwater pumped from subterranean aquifers. In the last 100 years, the sustainability of groundwater in the Central Valley has become threatened. As less surface water is allocated to farmers, they have resorted to pumping more and more groundwater to maintain and grow their business. And this has led to problems. Um, but, but so the issues that we see are drawdown of the water table, which can lead to water quality concerns. It leads to wells going dry, as we've seen in many communities in the Central Valley. John tells us that it's only in 2020, after decades of what he titles Wild West groundwater pumping, that California has finally implemented legislation to regulate and manage groundwater. This is occurring with the introduction of SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. This piece of legislation mandates all California groundwater basins regulate their groundwater and implement plans to avoid critical overdraft. But for some counties, like Tulare, groundwater basins are already critically overdrafted. In talking to John, we learned that California's water infrastructure makes life as we know it possible. We also learned that accessing water, surface water, and groundwater is often possible because of existing infrastructure and the presence or absence of water regulation. But what exactly is California's history when it comes to water infrastructure? In order to answer this question, we contacted investigative journalist and author Mark Eriks. His most recent book, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California, focuses on histories of water management in California and the profound effects it has on who has had access to water and what that water is used for. In making this podcast, we took time to read Mark's book. What we did learn is just how important California's built water landscape is in making agriculture in the Central Valley so successful today. Agriculture as we know it in California today just wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the dams, aqueducts, and reservoirs that allow us access to water in the dry months. Here's one example. The California Aqueduct delivers 1.1 million acre-feet of surface water to farmers in Kern County and 2 million acre-feet to faucets in Southern California. Even in wet years, Kern County has pumped nearly half a million acre-feet to grow its crops. This example shows that the large-scale state investment in water infrastructure, much of which Mark details in his book, began in the 1950s and lasted through the 1970s. This accelerated agricultural development by moving a lot of water that benefited farmers. Mark's book can help us understand how many of the water issues that we see in the Central Valley today are not caused by purely environmental conditions, but are legacies of decades of human decision-making. I pulled out an excerpt here where he writes, in California, drought isn't nature. Drought is man. Past statewide investments in water infrastructure have effectively allowed farmers to overcome environmental limitations and grow crops by moving water or pumping water. But what about the communities that live in the Central Valley? How have they fared in light of past droughts and with impeding threats of more extreme droughts that are predicted by climate scientists? 
As you heard Ildi say at the beginning of the podcast, despite the official statewide declaration that the drought was over in 2017, it persisted for three California counties located in the southern Central Valley. But in many of these counties, there were deep disparities between who had access to water and who did not. Those with access to wealth and resources, like large industrial-scale farmers, for example, were able to continue producing by pumping deeper into aquifers. But what about everyday people? We decided we needed to investigate this further. So we got in our cars and drove to the Central Valley. In December of 2019, we headed to the Southern Central Valley. As we set out to talk to residents who experienced the day-to-day realities of living without safe water, we focused on an area called the Tulare Lake Basin. This is an area south of Fresno, and as its name indicates, it used to be a lake. But in recent decades, Tulare Lake's surface water has been drained and used to irrigate farmland. And as the lake dried up, it has been converted to hundreds of acres of farmland. These farms have increasingly pumped groundwater because the area has very little direct access to surface water. As a result, the area is actually sinking. Or, to use a scientific term, it is experiencing subsidence. The Tulare Lake Basin, in many ways, illustrates some of the most dramatic and accelerated effects of groundwater pumping, drought, and climate change. The first person we meet here is Lucy Hernandez. As we pull up to her house on a Monday morning, she greets us with a warm smile and cushions in hand. We sit in her garden on a few dry chairs that remain after an unexpected morning rain shower. I ask her about water issues in her community. I was worried I was worried for my kids' health because I was afraid that they would just be drinking the water from the faucet because when we would run out of water, um, they would want to drink from the faucet, and I was afraid of them getting sick, Mm. uh, because I know that it's bad for you and a lot of people that they don't know about nitrates. Lucy discovered her tap water was contaminated. Nitrate contamination has been proven to have a variety of adverse health effects, effects that are especially dangerous for children. So she started buying bottled water. And this is what she used whenever she and her family needed to drink. It wasn't easy. Yes, every time we cooked and every time we needed to drink water, uh, sometimes we had to tell our children not to be drinking a lot of water because that meant uh, that we were going to be running out of water right away. Lucy lives in a small community called West Goshen. It has about 130 homes. And it's a lot like many of the communities in this area. It's also unincorporated something that we'll learn about more later in the podcast. When Lucy describes her community, she points out that a large percentage of the population is Latino, and many work directly in agriculture. I know that most of the people here are low income, and we need, uh, we need to make sure that we help our people, like um, they shouldn't be paying twice for water. So people had to make a choice, um, buying shoes for their children or buying water bottle for their children and that shouldn't be a choice. The demographic data indicates that, compared to the rest of California, almost all of the communities in this area are low income 
and they experience disproportionately high rates of environmental pollution in their water and their air. These communities also experience high rates of adverse health effects like asthma, cardiovascular disease, and low birth weights. But of course, the demographics aren't the whole story. Lucy's daughter-in-law, Melinda, joins us in conversation from her house across the garden. She chimes in to explain a little bit more about what it means to live here. I think one of the um, most important things to understand about communities like ours, uh, rural communities and farming communities, is that it's all families um, interconnected. Uh, they own more than multiple properties, and it'll be, you know, grandmother and then a son and daughter with their kids and, and it like exactly like in our case you know it's my mother-in-law and then my husband now and my children and and that speaks for most of our community members you know we have animals you can probably hear my roosters in the background um, chickens and things like that Lucy and Melinda's homes are surrounded by fields of peaches and nectarines grapes and corn the smell of the nearby dairies wafts in and out of our car as we drive away our visit to her home makes it really apparent that in this area, agriculture, water, and community health are intimately connected. But it's also apparent that many of the issues in the Central Valley are deeply influenced by questions of equity and access to water. I reflect on how during the drought, I was always able to open my tap, but I'm connected to a municipal water system. At the same time, large industrial farmers with access to resources were able to dig deeper wells and pump water to continue farming. Meanwhile, Lucy and Melinda were discovering their drinking water was contaminated and then paying twice for it. What's even worse is when the drought finally hit hard, their well actually collapsed. They went for days without water. Today, their community is connected to their neighboring town of Visalia's water supply but it took a water emergency to make this happen. We went on to learn that their challenges are not unique, but were faced by many people we spoke to for this podcast. And many of these folks agreed that environmental conditions and climate change have real and profound effects on their water availability. The amount of rainfall and snowmelt we get to feed our surface water supplies directly influences whether we experience droughts. But we also live in a state that has dramatically altered nearly every one of our natural waterways and pumped and depleted groundwater supplies in entire basins. As we talked to more people, it was becoming very clear that human forces, political power, water management, and regulation had a big role to play in determining who experiences drought. And this explains why many residents we spoke to don't view water issues as strictly environmental. In fact, many view them as water justice issues. Two towns over from Lucy, we spoke to Virgie. Virgie returned to her hometown of East Arosi seven years ago after living in the Bay Area. Virgie has ties to East Arosi going back five generations, and she also has extensive family in the area. When she came back to her hometown, she remembers her cousins warning her not to drink the water. A lot of people take, take you know, drinking water for granted. You know, until you realize that you live in a town where you can't enjoy a cup of water. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking in some ways. Because just see how, the de- uh, how you say, it, the deterioration of just the, the life of East Rossi. 
is it's not the same anymore. I remember growing up and running down the street and, you know, looking at people's yard. Everybody's yard was grass and had flowers. I know my grandparents' house had grass and flowers all the way around the whole property and just like a little paradise. And it's like now you just come to this, you know, contaminated water. It's just like the life out of, it seems like the life just drank, like left East Rossi. You know, it just seems like, you know, we're a little small town and it's like we're overlooked, not important enough because we're not a big enough town. You know, we're not a city. You know, we live in the rural areas, you know, a bunch of uh, minorities, you know. As we talked to more people, we found that this was not uncommon. Here is Susana de Anda, a community organizer and water justice activist. She tells us about how in her early days of door knocking, she kept hearing stories over and over again of residents who were scared to drink their water. Susana explains to us that when you look at water issues in California, they don't affect everyone equally. You know, in California, it's 2019, we still have over 1 million Californians exposed to toxic water on a daily basis. What that means is, you know, we roughly have over 300 public water systems out of compliance in the state of California. The majority of those systems are low-income communities, farm worker communities. Um, and what that means is that we have hardworking families having to pay some of the highest water rates for water they can't drink. And, and they can't drink it because they have contaminants that are very detrimental to their health, such as nitrates, arsenic, 123TCP, chromium-6, as Susana continues, she lays out why this is a water justice issue. Listen, you know, it, all Californians need to have safe and affordable drinking water. But it's very clear, and studies prove, that if you're low-income and a person of color, and you live in the Central Valley or a farm worker community, you're going to have higher chances of having polluted water and having to pay twice for water for a water bill. And on top of that, you have to drive to get vented water or bottled water. These problems are made worse by the fact that many residents often don't even know their water is contaminated. Susana tells us that good information is not trickling in from Sacramento to these rural communities. Not only are residents unaware, but so are their representatives. Cristóbal, like many folks in these communities, speaks Spanish. For this podcast, we decided to not translate interviews into English. We want to preserve the voices of people who spoke to us and let them communicate their stories in their own words. We think that even if you don't understand every single word, you will get a lot out of this story. And in case you do want full English translations, we have included them in the podcast transcript, which is available on our website. Now, back to Cristóbal. Right now, Cristóbal is showing me around his farm. He has a lot of really cute goats. He also has a few cows, chickens, and ducks, and a very noble-looking steed. Cristobal worked for many years as a truck driver. For decades, he saved his money to finally retire and purchase this farm. After raising his biological children, he took on several foster kids, who he loves as his own. They all live here, surrounded by agricultural land. There are melons and orchards growing next to his property, and we can see a dairy not too far off. 
I asked Crisoa what he likes about his community. Pues lo bueno de la comunidad que es muy tranquila. Uh, la mayoría de la gente se conoce y, y pues se vive a gusto. He tells me that he enjoys the tranquility and the familiarity of his neighbors. It's a nice life. As we sit in the gazebo and watch his kids play with the dogs, it isn't hard to understand why. It all looks so pleasant, like a scene out of a rural postcard. But there's something that's not quite right. Cristobal explains it took him and his family years to figure it out. El, el mayor problema que tuvimos que no, no nos dimos cuenta que el, lo contaminado que estaba el agua. Y el agua lo, lo consumimos por alrededor de 12 años. Hasta que me pidieron que si hacían un text sobre mi, sobre mi agua, si hacían una prueba al agua. Y de ahí fue donde nos dimos cuenta que está muy contaminada. Much like Lucy and Virgie, Crisol learned his water is contaminated. But perhaps because he lives on a more solitary tract of land, he was unaware for a long time. Crisol and his family drank his water for 12 years. When the drought hit, he invested about $20,000 to drill his well down deeper and make sure that he and his family had water. But soon thereafter, they tested his well and discovered his water has three to four times the amount of nitrates that would be allowed in a municipal water system. It also has bacteria. Like Lucy, Cristobal's family stopped drinking the water and started buying bottled water. At this point in our research, we began to realize these stories seem to have some common threads. So we began to do a bit of digging. Here is Susana again. So we have two ma- two sources of water for drinking water. We have groundwater and we have surface water. Over 90% of residents that live in the Central Valley rely on groundwater. In order for them to have access to surface water, you have to have water rights. Many of the local water public water systems that we work with don't have that resource. They don't have the water rights to surface water. So they rely solely on groundwater. Individual wells and wells that serve a small number of homes are not connected to municipal water systems the way you might be if you live in a city. And this means that the water quality is not so easily monitored. Many people only learn that there are harmful pollutants in their water after being informed by their neighbors, like in Lucy's case, or after being persuaded to test it like Cristobal was. When groundwater is contaminated in the Central Valley, there are two leading contaminants, arsenic and nitrates. And the arsenic contamination that we see in these wells doesn't come from human infrastructure, but from drilling deep into the ground, where these heavy metals are more abundant. And arsenic levels can increase with subsidence, which you now know is occurring in these areas. So it's just like our research and community members said, climate change has made the problem of water pollution worse. And then there is a second contaminant we mentioned, nitrates. Here's Susana again. She explains the connection between agriculture and water pollutants. Well, our groundwater for decades has been polluted from 
a variety of industries. Um, just for example, nitrates are coming from three major sources in the Central Valley. One from chemical fertilizer. You know, California is known for producing and creating food for the world. Well, that's one. You know, we, we use a lot of chemical fertilizer. The second major uh, contributor to nitrate pollution is coming from animal waste, manure. And the third one is leaky septic tanks. Susanna explains that unlike the naturally occurring arsenic, nitrate contamination is different. You know, as it relates to nitrates, because it's man-made or man-made problem, that means that we can fix it and we need to stop and prevent further contamination of that source into our drinking water. Unfortunately, many of these families have been living with contaminated water for decades, and most of them haven't gotten a lot of attention. Yet living in these ki- with these kinds of pollutants can have very serious problems. Cristóbal tells me that one of his children, now 18 years old, has had several different health problems. He can't prove that the fainting spells and episodes that sent her to the emergency room over the years are directly related to water, but he believes they have something to do with it. Living in these conditions is a real challenge for Crisola. He tells us a bit about what daily life is like. Y además de eso, en el 2014, el, uh, pues la, la noria o el, uh, el pozo se secó y tuvimos como seis meses uh, acarreando. Como por seis meses nos bañábamos con una con una jícara, pues con uno, o sea, una, un plato, una cosa se, para bañarnos y para lavar la traste, o sea, que no teníamos en el sistema, no había agua. Cristóbal is telling me that in 2014, his well completely dried out, and for six months, he had to haul water, not just water for drinking, but for doing dishes, for showering, and for anything else water is used for. Living with these water problems can be traumatic. He is uncertain about the future. He worries about the health of his children and his ability to overcome. And Cristóbal wasn't the only one who was so severely affected. We began to realize that this was an especially daunting problem for residents that live in unincorporated areas. For living in unincorporated communities often means that there aren't city resources available to regulate or fix water problems. And when water is unsafe or unavailable, there isn't a municipal water system to tap into. This means that when times are already hard, when there are less jobs in agriculture due to the drought, residents are burdened with water troubles. Here's Tomás García. He lives in one of the communities that was most hard hit by the drought, East Porterville. Tomás also predominantly speaks Spanish. Like Cristóbal, Tomás's taps completely dried out during the drought. For over six months, he had to fill large containers with water and transport them in his van to ensure his family could drink. The drought led to what many of our interviewees described as third-world conditions. Some of them described having to bathe out of buckets, It was a struggle. 
and these conditions led some residents to mobilize. Tomás tells me about how he started organizing in 2015. For three years, his family and his community of about 1,300 families didn't have water. Lo que nos pasó en el este de Portsmouth en el 2015 fue cuando nos quedamos la mayoría de nuestra comunidad sin agua. ¿va? Primeros tres años de ahí fueron muy difíciles, ¿va? tanto como para mí como el resto de la comunidad. When I asked Tomás to describe his community, he says, La comunidad donde, vivi donde yo vivo es una comunidad donde vivimos la mayoría de latinos. Uh -huh. Y pues casi la mayoría de, de, la, de la comunidad trabaja en el campo, campo agrícola, ¿verdad? Pero muchos de mis uh, uh, amigos y familias que, que viven alrededor trabajan pues la agricultura, va Como la pizca de la naranja, uva, todo lo que se da aquí en el valle. Con el trabajo que hay sin, sin agua, pues pienso que no, no tiene trabajo la gente, va Most folks in Tomás's community are Latinos, and the majority of people work in the fields, in agriculture. They work with oranges and grapes, as well as a variety of other crops, like pistachios. But when the drought hit, that was hard, because without water, he says, people didn't have much work. And this went on for three years. Pues en realidad lo, lo que la agricultura pues usa mucho. ¿va? Ahorita, en, ahorita lo que estamos viviendo es que antes pensaban que el oro valía mucho. No, el agua es oro ahorita. Ahorita pues si no tienes agua pues no puedes producir tu, lo que tienes. ¿va? Water is worth gold, Tomás says. Within many communities in the Central Valley, the flow of water has direct influences on their income and their ability to meet their basic needs. The recent drought compounded challenges that had existed before it and threatened both economic and health conditions. And Tomas tells me that these aren't the only needs they have in their community. They need streetlights, it needs sidewalks, and other basic infrastructure that can be found in the nearby city of Porterville. But asking for help doesn't come easy for members of his community. Tomás explains. Aunque muchos no queremos hablar de los problemas, porque pues la comunidad, comunidad latina es muy, muy difícil para hablar ¿eh? de esos problemas, aunque los tenga uno, nos guardamos, decimos que estamos bien. For Tomás, lack of access to water was such a pressing issue that he overcame his tendency to not ask for help. And he got connected with local organizers. He tells me that he felt like he had nothing to lose. Many of his own community members told him that his efforts wouldn't pay off. No one cared about them. But Tomás joined forces with a handful of others and went to the city of Porterville to ask for help. The response was not encouraging. The city responded that they could help supply water, but only for six months. After six months, Tomás was told there was no more help at the local level, and they had to find their own solution. Tomás explains to me that the reaction he got was both sad and hurtful. Pero como nosotros vivimos en el este de Porosville, mm -hmm. no nos pertenecía a nosotros ir a la ciudad. Necesitamos ir al condado, ¿verdad? En, esos, en ese tiempo. Mm -hmm. Pues fue algo muy, 
muy triste y doloroso para todos porque pues nos ayudaron, pero nomás por unos dos, tres meses, seis meses a lo más. The city of Porterville's response was that East Porterville, where Tomás lives, doesn't belong to the city. And this is true. Tomás's community is officially outside of the city boundaries, despite being only a few miles away. It is an unincorporated area, which means it is under the jurisdiction of the county and not the nearby city. It's seen these unincorporated community designations have some very profound effects on the lack of access to water in the Central Valley. So we decided to talk to clinical professor of law and water justice advocate, Camille Panu. Camille explains that unincorporated designations are common within the Central Valley of California, and in many ways they're legacies of structural racism. Communities that are predominantly composed low-income people of color are left out of city boundaries. In practical terms, this means that unincorporated communities are the responsibility of the county, which has less funding and fewer representatives. These communities also don't have things that many of us might take for granted in a city, like clean water, waste management systems, even bus stops, sidewalks, and streetlights. For Tomás, this meant that East Porterville didn't have access to a municipal water system. We spoke to a resident of Porterville. His name is Daniel Peñalosa, and he tells us about how shocked he was to discover that his neighbors didn't have access to water. And so they actually went, went, went through a run-through of like how they experienced their daily life. And for me, it was like, it was shocking because I, I couldn't believe that like two, two blocks away from where I lived, we had community residents that were having to live their life. Like they were like living in a third world country or like it was like, I, I could not imagine that this was America, right? And so they took their Honda Civic and we, we put like a, a huge barrel and they went to like the fire station and the, uh, the county fire station to like fill it up. And then they brought it up back into their car and they were just describing this whole process and and uh, and I was like what Daniel tells me they thinks people didn't realize how bad things could get East Porterville was the worst case scenario during the drought hundreds of families did not have access to water for years at the time Daniel was doing advocacy work with undocumented community members undocumented people are a population that's disproportionately vulnerable to be exposed to contaminated water and often limited in their political engagement. This is due to their status, which often leads to fear of exposure or fear of legal action that could separate them from their families. Daniel believes many of these issues are interconnected and rooted in histories of oppression. There's there's a whole power structure in the Central Valley that has existed for for over a hundred years uh, that have got us to where we're at. So it's not something like I think the more we study about this issue, the more we find out why we're here today, right? Because there's a history of why we got here today, and there's a history of where water has been going for many years and decades, and and why our communities uh, have been neglected uh, for, for many for many years. They were neglected here in East Portoville, but they're just one of many communities that have been neglected uh, when it comes to water. Like Camille, Danielle sees water issues as tied to deeper legacies of structural racism in the Central Valley. The reality is 
that in times of drought, municipal water systems ensure that residents have access to safe and affordable drinking water. But communities of color, undocumented people, and low-income communities that are just outside the cities are systematically denied access to water. Here is Daniela again. You have communities that suffer from lack of water, uh, access to clean and affordable water uh, from their immigration status. They already have, um, they are barely making enough money to survive. Seeing the confluence of all of these issues makes it more clear why these residents characterize these accessibility challenges as water justice issues. And it is important to note that many of them have taken direct action to address these issues. And many of them have done so by partnering with a very important player in water advocacy within the region, the Community Water Center. We've only just Remember Tomas? When we left off in his story, he was struggling to access water in his community. When Tomas went to the city of Porterville to ask for help, he was not alone. At that point, he had already gotten connected to the community water center. And when he received such sparse aid on the local level, they went big. They decided to go straight to Sacramento. Gracias a que la presión que se hizo también de los miembros de las nonprofits que nos ayudaron uh, uh, y de toda la prensa que estuvo presente y ha estado presente hasta ahora, para mí es como un sueño hecho realidad, ¿no? porque nunca pensé que iba a tener agua en mi casa, especialmente en un corto tiempo de tres años, a pesar de que hay comunidades que tienen de 10 a 20 años luchando por el mismo problema. Tomás tells me that he made several trips to Sacramento, where he and his fellow residents spoke to state representatives about the issues they were facing. They also spoke to international and local reporters. And their story gained traction on Facebook and other sources of social media. This was a multifaceted effort, he tells me. But there were several components that played a major role in the success. Cuando van los miembros de la comunidad a expresarse lo que están pasando, ellos miran que sí hay necesidades, pero como comunidad tienen que ir allá con ellos para expresarse porque localmente no, no se hace nada, a menos que vaya uno en grupo. Y gracias a que las non-profit organizaciones que nos estuvieron ayudando. He tells me that Community Water Center played a major role in helping him get educated on the issues, connecting community members to each other, and helping them voice their concerns to state representatives. Tomás believes that following these steps will allow other communities to effect change. In Tomás's case, there were already water lines crossing East Porterville that could be used to connect to Porterville. But trying to get East Porterville connected to these was met with initial resistance. But by directly speaking to representatives of the state, they began to negotiate and offer funding to connect the two communities. And after three years of struggle, Tomás's family and hundreds of others finally got access to safe and affordable drinking water. He tells me that to him, it was a dream come true. In addition, Tomás tells me that the success of East Porterville has laid out a template for other communities 
but the battle is far from over. Que hay cambios, va a haber cambios y para largo plazo de, de todas las comunidades que necesitan ayuda también. Pero como les digo, tienen que estar unidos, tienen que, estar, que hacer el sacrificio de ir con sus representantes y dar a saber su problema para que haya movimiento, para que ellos no nomás piensen que, que se terminó el día y se acabó el día de mañana, no. No nos olvidamos, agradecemos porque nos ayuden y pues que tengan conciencia que no nomás es una familia, son varios. After acquiring water in his community, Tomás remained connected to the community water center. And although he tells me that he wouldn't want even his worst enemy to go through what he did, he is very glad to have spoken up and learned how to affect change. Daniel also decided to take on a more active role in his community. After getting fired up about water access issues, Daniel joined the community water center staff. Part of my reason why I joined CWC was uh, organizing is is a beautiful thing, and it's and, and it can build powerful movements and regional movements. Um, but you also need the voices of the community to be in in positions of power to be able to reflect this, the, uh, the policymaking uh, that is happening at a local level all the way to the state level. Uh, how do we build a pipeline of leaders um, that reflect the communities that are being uh, impacted by these issues? Daniel has also become just such a leader. Daniel ran for and won a position as a city council member in Porterville, where he is continuing to advocate for communities. You remember Lucy? She ran for and was elected as a local water board member. And now, West Goshen has safe water flowing through their taps. As for Virgie, when we met her, she was preparing to be sworn in to her role as a water board member for her little town of East Arosi. Her family members say that she's always had a strong voice and she plans on using it. While organizing from the bottom up can be very effective, Daniel very aptly points out that this work needs to also come from the top. Here he is again. Uh, I know that there is more that that will be needed uh, to get to where I feel we need to be at uh, for our communities to not be suffering from from um, from a lack to, of, of access to water. The state needs to definitely continue to build stronger relationships with these communities uh, through their agencies that um, that. Um, that they, that they have to provide resources to the community. When it comes to building up local leadership and implementing statewide change, the Community Water Center has played a pivotal role. This is probably a good place to tell you that Susana de Anda, that voice you have been hearing throughout the podcast, is not only a water activist, but she is also the executive director of Community Water Center and an absolute powerhouse in the water justice world. In 2019, we finally passed, after a decade of work, uh, the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund. Very significant, huge movement towards the right direction to implement the human right to water in California because it's going to provide $1.4 billion for the next 10 years for these public water systems that have been out of compliance. Susana has been pushing for this legislation for over a decade, and she is careful to remind us 
that the struggle is one that stemmed from leadership and courage of many that came before her. She reminds us that many of the folks that spent their entire lives fighting for their community's right to water sadly did not live to see the day. But their efforts have yielded very important victories. We believe that all Californians should have safe and affordable drinking water as a basic human right, and it should not be a privilege. Every year we've managed to provide and pass significant policies and build bottom-up power. Uh, and one I can tell you that in 2012, we managed to pass a human right to water in California, AB 685. And it's this law that was passed that basically sets this, the framework that the state of California has recognized that water needs to be provided for all basic necessities, for sanitation and for drinking water, as a basic human right. And while the passage of the spill isn't the end of the battle, it is a major step in the right direction. When I asked scholar Camille Panu about it, she stated that it was undeniable that it represented a significant shift in water policy. 2019 was a good year for water justice. The passage of the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund now allocates millions of dollars to improve access to drinking water in the areas that need it the most. Camille shared with me that these pieces of legislation represent important policy shifts that encourage state agencies to lead and innovate around water access. Additionally, regulations like the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act provide necessary regulation to avoid overdraft. Throughout our reporting for this podcast, we heard stories from individuals who were faced with significant water challenges and who didn't initially see themselves as activists or even as particularly outspoken. But today, they are involved residents who share information, mobilize, and take policy actions on water issues. And this kind of mobilization is tremendously important. Here's Susanna again. People at the forefront of the impact need to be at the forefront of change. If that's not happening, then we're going to have a flawed approach and a flawed solution. But what about those of us that aren't directly affected by these issues? Do we have a role to play too? Susanna thinks we do. You know, there's a call to action for all residents of the state to ensure that let's just let's solve this issue and allow these residents who've been mobilizing for decades to be able to live with safe drinking water in their home and not have to wait another decade or have other generations condemned to living in this crisis of not being able to drink your tap water at home and go to school and can't drink it there. We have to stop condemning future generations of that. And it's going to take a collective of recognizing that as a human right, all humans deserve to have safe and affordable drinking water. It's also recognizing that those folks in the state that don't have that reality are hardworking families that are part of the, the fabric of, in this case, the agricultural community. We're part of that fabric of life and the economy. Um, and we have to just remember that... Um, at the end of the day, we also need to prioritize those that don't have safe drink water at, at the forefront of that. Everyone, all humans, need water to survive. It made us wonder if this may be one issue around which people can really unite. Back in West Goshen, Lucy and Melinda don't agree with the political beliefs of some of their closest neighbors. But when we asked them about water issues, Melinda replied. It doesn't matter what political lines you fall on, what religious lines you fall on, and any of that, all at, at the end of the day, we all have the same problem. 
Nevertheless, implementing the kind of structural changes that are necessary won't be easy. It will require that we think about unincorporated communities and small-scale water systems and individual wells like that of Grisoa. It will also require those of us who aren't directly affected by these issues to reflect on the role we have to play by benefiting from the flows of water and political power. Here's Daniel again. It may be hard for us to think outside of our own lives sometimes, but it's it's a really important, we need to think beyond because our world is ours. And part of being human is that it's uh, it's going beyond just being an American citizen. It's, being, it's going beyond being a Mexican citizen. It's really thinking about the relationship that water has to every human being. The world is ours. And it is a world that's full of very real and sometimes daunting challenges. Californians are most likely facing more frequent and extreme droughts as the effects of climate change increase. As this happens, will we ensure water infrastructure and regulations are in place to grant justice? And who will be prioritized in accessing water? The tricky part here is that while everyone needs water for their immediate survival, water to drink, to cook, to do daily domestic tasks. We also need water to grow food and provide Californians with jobs. This podcast focused on impacted communities and the actions they've taken to remain resilient in the face of these challenges. But we're fairly sure that these issues would be framed very differently if we talked to farmers or water managers. But that's a story for a whole other podcast. Water issues are complicated, but we hope that what is clear is that drought, at least as far as the Tulare Lake Basin is concerned, is not purely environmental. Our collective decision-making, even if it is over decades and at a statewide level, has profound effects on who has access to water and what that water is used for. And if Californians have the power to move millions of acre feet of water, to reshape landscapes, and to be the breadbasket of the country and the world at large, do we not also have the responsibility to make sure that all Californians have their basic needs met? I suppose many of our interviewees would argue that that answer is up to us. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts if you subscribe to this podcast. And by the way, if you rate the Calag Roots podcast, it will help other people to discover it. This story was produced by Dr. Claire Gupta and Christina Murillo Barrick, who are part of a UC Davis research team funded by the National Science Foundation. This podcast was produced thanks to an ongoing collaboration with the Community Water Center and the California Institute for Rural Studies. Big thanks go out to everyone whose voices you heard here. Lucy Hernandez, Melinda Metheny, Virgie Nunez, Cristobal Chavez, Tomas Garcia, Susana de Anda, and Daniel Peñalosa. We also want to thank Dr. Jonathan Herman, Mark Arax, Camille Panu and Ryan Jensen for sharing their expertise. Audio edits were mastered by Victoria Boston, and the Calag Roots theme music is by Nangto. 
This project was funded and developed as part of the National Science Foundation Coupled Human Natural Systems Grant.